One of my deepest pleasures in being a pastor is conducting membership interviews. You get to hear people's stories, evidence of God's providence in their lives, of relationships and of circumstances that God in his grace and mercy have used to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And that for many of you, the members in our churches, those stories are often filled with immense pain of broken relationships, of pain that came as the consequence of personal sin. And yet God in his grace used that pain, as severe as it may be, to humble us, to break us, and to drag us by his grace to Jesus with no more strength and no more reliance on ourselves. We need something, or rather we needed somebody stronger than us that we could throw ourselves upon in faith and trust, and that was Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, old pastor, this was his story, and he wrote a poem speaking about both the severity of God toward him and the kindness of God in saving him. Listen to this. I once was a stranger to the grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. Jehovah Sikenu means the righteous Lord. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Zidkenu meant nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, oh, then legal fears shook me and I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sikenu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, all life-giving and free. Jehovah Sikenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sikenu, oh, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sikenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, oh, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Sikenu, my death song shall be. What McShane describes 
in the severity and the kindness of our righteous Lord in salvation is the same thing that many of us have experienced. Severe in, the, in that God shook him and that he trembled to die. Kind in that God's severity led him to Christ. We're going to see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 19. The Lord is going to be severe with Egypt. Severe in that he will make them shake and he will cause them to tremble with fear. You can see that in verse 16. And he will be kind to Egypt. Kind in that his severity will lead them to, as you see in verse 21, know the Lord and worship him. The kindness of God or rather the severity of God, leads to the kindness of God. Salvation through judgment. That's been the theme in many of our lives. That is a big theme in Isaiah, and it's the big idea of chapter 19. If you're taking notes, here's my sermon in a sentence. It's the big idea of our entire passage. God fulfills His gospel promises by judging an entire nation in order to save a remnant into his church. God fulfills his gospel promises by judging an entire nation in order to save a remnant into his church. And here in chapter 19, we're going to see two things. In verses 1 through 15, we are going to consider the severity of God in judging and in verses 16 through 25, we will consider the kindness of God in saving. We'll consider the severity of God in judging, verses 1 through 15, and then we will consider the kindness of God in saving, verses 16 through 25. Let's consider those first 15 verses, the severity of God in judging. We're going to see a number of things through these 15 verses. In verse 1, we're going to see judgment has come. Then in verses 2 through 4, we're going to see social collapse. In verses 5 through 10, we're going to see economic collapse. In verses 11 to 13, we'll see political collapse. And in verses 14 and 15, we'll see the very leadership of Egypt collapse. We're seeing the disintegration of an empire before our eyes being prophesied. Let's consider that first verse, God's judgment in verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. One commentator said, The abiding message of a passage such as this lies not in its details, which are peculiar to its situation and date, but in its insistence that the problems of society, economics, and politics have a spiritual causation. They are the outworking, he says, of the divine purposes and are directly traceable to the hand of God, not the outworking of sociological laws, market forcings, forces, or political fortunes. It is only by the recourse of the Lord that they can be solved. What we see in verse 1 is that a sovereign warrior is coming. And that warrior is Yahweh. It's the Lord. 
And he is envisioned, as you see here, as riding on a swift cloud. The image of God riding on a cloud speaks of his sovereignty. That he doesn't serve the purposes of his creation. His creation serves his purposes. And so we see in Psalm 104, for instance, the God who makes the clouds his chariot. That he is the one who has the power to create all things, and he is the one that sustains all things. We see also in Psalm 68, the God who rides in the heavens. That's what we saw in our call to worship this morning. He is the one who in his power brings judgment and wrath against his enemies. And so here we see in verse one, a warrior is riding on a swift cloud. But to who is he coming? Look at the second line of verse one. He is coming to the longest standing enemy of Israel, and that is Egypt. Throughout scripture, Egypt stands as a symbol of worldliness and of bondage. Not only that, it stands as a symbol of God's great work of redemption. That in defeating Egypt, he had saved his people Israel in the Exodus. And in the Exodus, God redeemed Israel by humiliating Egypt's idols one by one through a series of plagues. And you notice again at the end of verse 1, God is going to humiliate their idols again. Here we have God's history, redemptive history, is repeating itself. There is going to be a new exodus. And we're going to see that his judgments against Egypt are going to have four catastrophic consequences. We're going to see verse first in verses 2 through 4, the social collapse of Egypt. He says, I'm going to stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they're going to fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. I'll confound their counsel. They'll inquire of the idols and the sorcerers, mediums and necromancers, and I'll give over the Egyptians into the hands of a hard master. A fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Notice in verse 2, God is going to make Egypt devour itself. Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt both have their own capitals, and they are going to go to war with one another. There's going to be civil war. And during this civil war, in verse 3, God is going to so discredit their leaders that when everything falls apart and nobody has any answers for why this is happening, Egypt is going to want answers. And so who are they going to turn to? They're going to inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. How true is that? Do we not see this in our own day? That when our stability is lost and our politicians have lost all their credibility, we want answers. And we get real spiritual real quick. This is what happens when a society begins to crumble. And it's at this time, verse 4, that in the midst of this civil war and this spiritual ignorance that God will give them into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king. That Egypt is so weakened itself because of infighting and division that they won't even have the strength to resist. Conquest and collapse is inevitable. So here God is saying, you proud and arrogant nation, Oh, I'm going to give you the leadership that you so richly deserve. He is going to come and be a hard master and a fierce king. There is going to be social 
collapse. Well, then in verses 5 through 10, we're not only going to see social collapse, but we're going to see another layer. We're going to see economic collapse. That after God brings about this social collapse, economic collapse follows. And if you're a Jew, oh, you're going to get a kick out of hearing the word Nile mentioned over and over again here. Verse 5, and the waters of the sea will be dried up. The river will be dry and parched and its canals will become foul. The branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There'll be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. And on, and on all that is sown by the Nile will be parched. It will be driven away and be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast a hook into the Nile, they will languish. Those who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. He mentions in verses 5 through 7, Nile over and over and over again because the Nile is not just the product or rather uh, the object of their productivity. It is also the object of their worship that he is proving to them once again that he is the one true God and there are none other like him. And we see in verses 8, 9, and 10 that the fish industry and the linen industry and the agricultural industry have all collapsed. And at the end of verse 10, the very pillars of society are all crushed. All of the mightiest men of industry are being devoured by this collapse. All of us have heard stories of panicked investors jumping out of windows to their death during the stock market crash of 19. 29. That's similar to what's happening here. That things are so bad that the Bill Gates and the Tim Cooks and the Jeff Bezos of Egypt are jumping out of windows. The poor and the rich alike are being utterly destroyed by this economic collapse. That when God goes to war with a nation, he uses the weapons of social and economic collapse. God doesn't owe us anything. And so we see this even in our own generation, don't we? We've seen this around the world, perhaps even in our own nation. I want to be really slow to identify the judgment of God, and yet we seem to see similar patterns in our own day, don't we? God doesn't owe us anything. And he will bring judgment against those who rebel against him. So we see economic collapse in verses 5 through 10. And that economic collapse is also going to be coupled in verses 13, 11 through 13 with political collapse. That the princes of Zoan, oh, they're utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise and the son of ancient kings? Zoan is the capital of upper Egypt. And those leading the nation, God says, are utterly foolish. In fact, he says the wisest counselors, they give, quote, stupid counsel. Literally, they're idiots. They're morons. That's not exaggerating. That's literally what is being said here. And so in verse 12, Isaiah asks, well, well, then where are all of the wise men? He says, I tell you what, once you find them, I want you to ask them if they can tell you anything about the God of armies and of his will for Egypt. Of course, they're not going to be able to do that. Isaiah is being sarcastic. 
They'll be able to do no such thing because they are darkened in their unbelief and they have become fools. And in their foolishness, verse 13, look at this, they have made Egypt stagger. They've led the nation astray. Well, that imagery of staggering is going to carry over into verses 14 and 15 because there Isaiah is going to prophesy the collapse not only of Egypt's political structure, but of the very leaders that fill it. Look at this. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all of its deeds as drunken men stagger in his vomit. That imagery of staggering is the imagery that signifies a confused nation. And I want you to notice here, who is taking all of the credit? The Lord is. He is the one that confused the nation. He is the one that takes all the credit for what is happening to Egypt in this social, economic, and political collapse. In fact, that word for spirit that you see there in verse 14, it's a word that denotes a strong alcoholic drink. And so it's no wonder then that the nation is staggering. They're unstable, they're foolish. Verse 15, if you have a New International Version, I really like the way that this is translated. I think it's right. It says, there is nothing that Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. It brings to mind once again what we read in Isaiah 14 several weeks ago, that once God stretches out his hand, who can turn it back? The answer, nobody. There is nothing that Egypt can do that once God has put it within that nation to judge them and to bring them to collapse, there's nothing that anyone can do. The only solution, as that commentator mentioned at the beginning of, of this section, is for the Lord himself to bring about a solution. And that's exactly what he does in verses 16 through 25. So here in the first 15 verses, we've considered the severity of God in judging and that he has brought about Social collapse, economic collapse. He has brought about political collapse and leadership collapse. But here we're going to see that the very Lord that judges is also kind in saving. Let's consider the kindness of God in saving, verses 16 through 25. Before we do, though, let me set a little context. Put your finger there in Isaiah 19. Go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. This is a glorious promise of a day that has been inaugurated in our own age and will be consummated at the return of Christ. And look at what the word is or what the word says in verse 2, that it comes to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord or the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And look at this. All the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Just give attention to that verse 2. All the nations, beginning of verse 3, many peoples. 
There's a real sense in which this finds its fulfillment between the first and the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been inaugurated in our own day. We are in the last days and it will be consummated when Christ returns. But Isaiah is going to give us a little bit more detail about this age. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Here we're considering this idea of all nations, many peoples, and we're going to get a little bit more explicit. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 10. That in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal of the peoples. Remember what we talked about? Who's the signal? The signal is the root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus is. Jesus is going to be raised up as a flag, a signal of victory for his peoples. And of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then watch this in verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pethros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Did you mention, did you see a familiar name from Egypt? Now I want you to go back to chapter 19. Here's what God says, beginning in verse 16. Here we're going to see that God has a plan for the nations. And that plan doesn't just end with Israel. Israel is a means to an end. The Jews of Jesus' day lost sight of the vision that they were to be a means to the end of the glory of God covering the entire earth. And now we're going to see God's plan carried out. If we were to draw an outline of verses 16 through 25, it might look something like this. In verses 16 to 17, we're going to see humiliation. In verse 18, we're going to see translation. In verses 19 to 22, we're going to see transformation. In verse 23, we'll see reconciliation. And in verses 24 and 25, we'll see mission. If you're taking notes and didn't get those, don't worry about it. They'll all be repeated. We're going to see humiliation, translation, transformation, reconciliation, and mission. I love it when a good rhyme comes together in the Bible. Let's start off in 16. Look at this. In the day that the Egyptians, in that day, by the way, you're going to see that phrase mentioned in each one of these sections. In that day, verse 16. Verse 18, in that day. Verse 19, in that day. Verse 23, in that day. Verse 24, in that day. Each one of these phrases are marking a new aspect of the glorious work that God is going to do in saving his people in Egypt. Let's begin in the first. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. Well, we'll have to talk about that. And tremble with, <clears throat> excuse me, with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In verses 1 through 15, we saw God working externally on Egypt. But now here in verses 16 and 17, we begin to see God doing an internal work. And that's often how God works, isn't it? That's why we often pray evangelistically. And we pray prayers like, God, do whatever you have to do to make that person or those groups of people 
realize their desperate need for Jesus. And God does this. He does it to wake us up to our need for a Redeemer, not just through terror-stricken consciences, but he'll use cancer diagnoses. He'll use economic collapse, as we've seen in verses 1 through 15. He may even use global pandemics. Sometimes God will permit a marriage union to be so dysfunctional and disruptive that the couple has no other place to turn but God himself. They are out of wisdom. They are tired. They are worn out. They've got nothing left. And the only one left to turn to is the one who is omnipotent and makes all things new. You see, God has a lower view of our temporal comforts than we do. I wonder how many times our prayers are absorbed with our temporal comforts. As if God is concerned or as concerned with our comforts as we are. But God will not hesitate to knock out from under us our temporal comforts if that's what it's going to take for him and his grace to save us. And that's what we see happening here. That in that day, the Egyptians will be like women, tremble with fear. What does he mean that they will be like women? He's not suggesting that women fear and men don't. Remember, this is the language of battle. God is coming against Egypt like a warrior. And women, biologically, are simply weaker than men. That if a strong man and a strong warrior comes against a woman, that woman will not stand. And that is the image that he's portraying here. That defeat is inevitable. Well, in verse 17, God has so weakened Egypt through social and economic and political collapse that even Judah is going to become a terror to them. Little bitty Judah, little bitty helpless, defenseless Judah is going to be a terror to them. This is like saying that Texas is going to be afraid of Rhode Island or New Jersey. It just ain't going to happen. But all of Egypt, all Egypt can see is God's purposes coming against them. Defeat is inevitable, such that even little bitty Judah, little bitty defenseless Judah, has struck terror into them. But I want you to notice that all of this, it's not because of Judah's intimidating strength. It's because, in verse 17, the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Egypt is terrified of Judah, not because of Judah's strength, but because of Judah's godliness. Coincidentally, this is why many faithful Christians often have a hard time in the secular workplace. Ungodly people are often threatened by godliness. It exposes them. And so it can be difficult to work in a place that is ungodly and wicked and maintain godliness and it will set you against the current if you're to be faithful to God. We need to pray often for our brothers and sisters who work in industries in which there is much ungodliness and much wickedness where things that the Lord has declared good, they call evil, where the things that the Lord has called 
evil they call good and that they would persevere in godliness in those contexts. So Egypt is terrified of Judah, not because of Judah's strength, because of Judah's godliness. It's exposed them. It humbles them. But before we move on to the next verse, I want you to notice the last two words of verse 17. Against them. God came against them. This is the same kind of language, if you remember, that Naomi used when she returned home from Moab in the book of Ruth. Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons had to go to Moab because of a severe famine. And in Moab, Elimelech dies and both of Naomi's sons die. We finally, when she finally comes back, nobody recognizes her and she says, the hand of Jehovah has gone out against me. And in the moment, that's exactly what she perceived. That God was against her. her his hand had come against her. But when you step back and you look at the entire book of Ruth, and then you take another step back and you look at the book of Ruth in the context of the entire Bible, you discover that God's hand wasn't against her at all. It was at work for her and for the sake of the entire world. Because who was it that she brought back with her from Moab? It wasn't Elimelech and it wasn't her two sons. Who was it? It was Ruth. And who did Ruth, because of Naomi, end up marrying? She married Boaz. And who did Boaz and Ruth become great, 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 great grandparents to? According to Matthew chapter 1, it's Jesus. We've all felt at times, haven't we? Like God is punishing us. That his hand is against us. For some reason, he's coming down hard on us or is angry with us. But I once heard a faithful pastor say, when it comes to making sense of God's work in your life, you make a better historian than you do a detective. Historians reflect on the past to help make sense of present circumstances, whereas detectives solve mysteries. And then he said, God works in mysterious ways and you're not Sherlock Holmes. Too often, we try to discern the mystery of God in the moment rather than being good historians and looking at how his hand has worked in our lives through the lens of his word over time. The providence of God in our lives is always best looked at through hindsight, never in the present and not so much in foresight. We wanna be good theological historians. Well, the same is gonna be true here. God's hand has come against them. And in verse 18, their humiliation we're gonna see leads to translation. What do I mean by translation? Look at this. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan. And they swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. We notice here that out of six cities in Egypt, five of them are gonna be saved. Just speaking here metaphorically, that's simply to say that a lot of Egyptians are gonna be saved by God's grace. And in that day, it says, they are gonna speak the language of Canaan. 
They're going to speak the mother tongue of the promised land. What does that mean that they're all going to speak Hebrew? No, I don't think that's what it means. In that day, what it means when it says they're going to speak the language of Canaan, it means something like what we mean when when somebody says something that we agree with or that we like. We go, oh, now you're speaking my language. It's the same theme here. That in that day, when God begins his inward work on the heart of these Egyptians, they're going to have the same confession as the people of God. Their allegiance, see that in the middle of the verse? Their allegiance will be to the Lord of hosts. Their language is going to change. What was once profanity will become praise. And all who believe will look at these Egyptians and go, oh, you're speaking our language, baby. That's exactly what we think about God. That's exactly what he's done for us. Welcome to the family. You're speaking our language. And so humiliation has led to translation. And in verse 18, notice that this transformation, is, or this translation is gonna lead to transformation. In verses 19 through 22. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Oh, and it's gonna be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. We see in verse 19 that God begins to expand his work. Here we see an altar and a pillar. The altar is for worshiping and the pillar is for remembering. And this is what we see through the history of God's people, isn't it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, that whenever God stops them in their path, turns them around in repentance and gives them his promises, they build an altar right there in the spot and they call upon his name. And they would also erect pillars of remembrance so that they might remember the good, gracious things that God had done for them in giving him his promises. And so that they might persevere in their worship. So they worship God and they keep worshiping God by remembering God. They build altars and they build pillars. And in verse 20, they cry to the Lord. A biblical expression of crying to the Lord is that of repentance and faith that they are asking the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, to save them. And notice what he does in verse 20. He will send a savior and a champion to deliver them. The Hebrew word for that savior in noun form is Yeshua. He will send them Yeshua. And he will be a defender or a champion for them. Well, hundreds of years later, an angel appeared to a man named Joseph who was betrothed to a young woman named Mary. And this angel told Joseph in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua. For he will save 
his people from their sins. And then the angel quotes, guess who? Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. On that day, the Lord will save them. He will not only save them, but read in verse 21 how the salvation is described. The Lord will make himself known. And they will know the Lord. In the book of Exodus, do you remember why God sends plagues against Egypt? It's so that they would know something. And you see it over and over. Chapter 6, all the way to Moses' song in chapter 15. It's so that they would know that I am God. So do the Egyptians know the name of Jehovah by the end of the 10th plague? Well, yes and no. Yes, they knew about him, but they didn't know him. And this is always the mark of true religion, isn't it? Not just knowing something intellectually, but to know it experimentally, experientially because God in his grace has acted upon them. So the Lord made himself known to them at the Exodus, but they didn't know the Lord. But notice here in verse 21 that in this day, oh, something greater than the Exodus is happening. Not only will the Lord make himself known, but the Egyptians, unlike in the days of Moses, will know the Lord and they will worship him. Oh, and they're gonna serve him. God did an amazing work in the plagues of Exodus. But he's going to do an even more amazing work in this day. They won't just, he won't just make himself known. They will know him. And they will worship him. And they will serve him. That is amazing. That's why when we look at verse 22, how is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to accomplish this work of bringing them to know him? It's not what we would expect. Look at what he says. He will strike them and he will heal them. And then they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In the Exodus, God only struck the Egyptians, but then rescued his people. But in this day, according to verse 22, he's not only going to strike them, but he's also going to heal them. And in healing them, they will return to him. That word return doesn't mean that there was some time at which the Egyptians were with God and now they're not. And then they were again. That word return in Hebrew simply means to turn. It's the Hebrew word for repentance. So God in his sovereign grace strikes them and heals them so that they will return repent and turn to him. All true repentance has been brought about and initiated by God's grace. Only a heart that has been stricken and healed can turn to God. And that's exactly what he continues to do in our own lives, doesn't he? That he wounds us in order to heal us. Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan, said this, let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. Have you ever felt bruised by God? This is from his little work, uh, The Bruised Reed. 
It's, a, it's an exposition on a passage in Isaiah that's talking about the promise of God that he will not break a bruised reed and he will not cause a dimly lit wick to be extinguished. He is gentle. Have you ever felt bruised? This is what Sib says. Let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. Christ's way is first to wound, then to heal. No sound, whole soul, shall ever enter into heaven. Think when in temptation Christ was tempted for me. According to my trials will be my graces and comforts. If Christ be so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair nor yield myself over to the roaring lion, Satan, to break me to pieces. He's saying, I'm going to trust that every time the Lord Jesus Christ bruises me, it is so that he can heal me. It is his grace. And he will not break me. And the temptation is for us to be broken in despair, or to be broken by the accusations of the devil. But Christ is not like our own hearts, and he is not like the devil. He is gentle. And he uses all of the bruises that he brings into our lives to heal us because he's a good physician. If you've ever had surgery, that surgeon would not be a good surgeon if he doesn't wound you first. He's got to cut you open and create a wound in order to heal you. That's the scalpel of our Savior. And that's exactly what he's doing with Egypt. They are going to be transformed by God's grace, and he's going to do it by wounding them and healing them. And in that healing and in that turning, in verse 23, we see this transformation leads to reconciliation. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. <laughs> That's an amazing passage. It's a, it's a glorious picture that signifies the, the removal of all ethnic and all national enmity, of all hostility. Whereas once the Assyrians and the Egyptians were enemies, now there's a sense of brotherhood between the two of them. The, Egypt, the Egyptians are welcoming the Assyrians. The Assyrians are welcoming the Egyptians. And what is it that binds them together according to verse 23? Worship. Worship of the Lord God of armies is what binds them together. And this is because in verses 24 and 25, Israel is seen as fulfilling her mission to the nations. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? What is the promise that God gives to Abraham? He says when he calls them and makes him the very first Hebrew, he says, through your seed, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is the seed of Abraham? It's not physical ethnic Israel. Paul gives the answer in Galatians chapter 3. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise was given to seed, Paul says, singular. That's why he goes on to say that it's not circumcision and it's not physical descent that makes one a son of Abraham. Now, those who are in Christ by faith, Abraham's seed, singular, those who are grafted into him, they are the sons of Abraham. And in Christ, he goes on to say, into chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Because in Christ, the dividing barrier, that, that dividing wall that kept Jew from Greek, that dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians chapter 2, has been broken down and God is making them into one new man. And that's what we see happening here at the end of Isaiah 19. There is a highway between Egypt and Assyria. And that highway is Jesus. He says, I'm not only the truth, I'm not only the life, but I am the way. He is the highway. He is the highway that brings warring nations together in worship. God is going to save his people from Israel. He is going to save his people from Egypt. And then we notice at the very end, this edition, he's going to save his people from Assyria. What a staggering and scandalous statement this is. See at the end of verse 25, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. The Jews in Jesus' day would have been scandalized by this promise. But God is doing something amazing. He is not only going to save Egypt, but he's going to save Assyria. Now remember, when Isaiah is talking to Judah, all of this is concerned with Assyria, this whole section, because Assyria is the one that is breathing down their necks. He, not Egypt at this time, is the most bitter of enemies. They're thinking about, about building an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. And now he says, Assyria will be the work of my hands? What? How's he going to do that? Nobody likes Assyria. I don't really know that I want to be in league with them. In Acts chapter 13, shortly after Pentecost, Paul and Barnabas go into Antioch to preach the gospel, and there they plant a church with new believers. And that church in Antioch would end up becoming the most influential Gentile church in the apostolic age. You may remember in Galatians, that is where the apostles from Jerusalem came to visit Paul. Antioch was home base for Paul. And do you know where Antioch is? It's in the former nation called Assyria. Today, the former empire of Assyria would be Syria, Iraq, Turkey. It's a huge area with lots of ethnic strife. And Jesus, even today, has a faithful remnant in those places because of Isaiah 19. 
the glory of the gospel that we so often take for granted is how Christ breaks down the barrier of separation to make one new man. And this is the glory of the work of our Savior in the church. I want to read something to you. This is an update. from a dear brother, a friend of mine, who's pastoring a church in Iraq. I won't tell you the city, I can't do that. Pastoring a church in Iraq. This is from one of his recent updates. And I want you to be thinking about Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands as I read this, okay? This is hard to believe, but one year ago today we landed in Iraq, and I was installed as the pastor of this International Baptist Church. What a joyful, astonishing, and significant year this has been. I am grateful to God. He says, in my last letter, I asked you to pray for the church to flourish as a beacon of light in a crooked and depraved generation. Oh, if ever there was a place where the people of God could shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation, it's here. And it's happening. Let me tell you how God is answering our prayers. Last week, we had more baptisms. Six people from five nations Three from Muslim backgrounds all came to faith through the work of the church. And these baptisms drew many visitors who had never been to a church. The Muslim husband of one of the women who was being baptized came to see. And he's a kind man who loves his wife. And though he is frightened by what may happen to her, he's supportive of her conversion. And he puts in parentheses, please be careful with this news. And then he wrote me after the baptism. He said that it was his first time to attend a church and wanted to tell me what he noticed. He said it was in broken English, so here I've cleaned it up a bit. He said he noticed first the unity of the church across ethnic lines. This is an unbelieving Iraqi man, staggered by the unity of the church across ethnic lines that there was no difference between men and women worshiping together. That he loved being able to be with his family in church. They even brought their son and the love that he saw between the people of the church. And then he said, and he quotes, thanks to God for his nice works. Boy, what an understanding. He says, I believe that our greatest witness is not our cultural contextualization, but our love for one another, as Jesus tells us in John 13. I'm grateful that this Muslim man saw it so clearly. Here's this brother pastoring an international church in the heart of a former empire of Assyria, seeing men and women from all nations come to trust in Christ and be baptized into his church and for his church to be a glorious witness 
to the work of Christ in breaking down that wall of division and creating one new man in Jesus. Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. Praise Jesus.